see this coming. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And today I'm bringing back an old friend who has been on the podcast several times, Joe Geisner. Joe, can you say hello? Hi, Lindsay. How are you this evening? I am doing well. We talked about you living over there in California and Brandon Zion. How is how is Brandon Zion going? Oh, I love it. Um, I love the flowers being all in bloom right now. And fog comes in every morning and waters everything. Life is heaven. Life is heaven, except for it's not quite Zion. <laughs> um, so Joe's been on a few times, uh, but this is the podcast episode that people request the most. They want us to talk about the Martin Willie Handcart companies. And you and I have been kicking around this idea for a while, but even when you've been on, you've referenced it before, but we've never really specifically talked about it. Yes, we have. We've actually touched upon it at least the borders of it. I think in the uh, the Reformation, Utah War Reformation episodes, I think we touched upon it. Yeah, so we're going to do that today. But before we get into the handcart story, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself for those who um, are new or tuning in or who are not going in order on the podcast like they're supposed to. <laughs> I uh, became fascinated and interested in Mormon history actually as a teenager, but I really started studying it when I was in my 20s and started reading Sunstone Dialogue, Journal of Mormon History, BYU Studies, all of that, and the New, and the new Mormon History. Um, I then started actually writing a bit and speaking a bit, and I love Sunstone. I've been a Sunstone member, subscriber, uh, attendee, since 1988. I've not the original group, but pretty close to those early years. My wife and I provide residential services for developmentally disabled people here in Sonoma County. Speaking of Brandon Zion, I didn't mention that uh, all the grapes look fantastic right now for the wine. So all those who drink wine will be glad to hear that the grapes are doing well. I only drink wine of my own make, made in Dixie, like a good Mormon would. Do you make sure and get a good barrel and stomp and then have a jug on the outside to catch the, the juice? No, I only do it while I sing songs from the children's hymn book, primary songs. Oh, that's good. Yeah, uh, it's it's a new, you haven't been to church for a while. It's a new thing in the handbook. I understand oh. you wouldn't know that, but. Uh, so, I, I can see this all occurring in Relief Society room. Yeah, it's we do it. It's we call it Super Saturday, but it's a lot more fun than it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get into the story of the hand carts. Um, I went on something that Mormons do called trek. So for our non-Mormon listeners, when when I was eighteen, they st- I think they had just started this program. It had been done. Um, in a few, you know, random stakes by people who were really dedicated, but they really made it a thing. When I turned 18, it was the first year, and we got to dress like pioneers, and they made these wooden handcarts, and we got to reenact parts of the handcart trek. Um, I think we weren't even on the actual trail. They just put us on some random ranch property in Wyoming, and we dressed like pioneers, and we pushed the handcarts, and we each took with us a name 
of a pioneer ancestor to sort of like, you know, as a proxy or to remember them. And this story of the handcarts really shaped my Mormon youth. You know, I come, I'm a Utah Mormon. I grew up hearing stories of the pioneers and you do not grow up in the church and not hear about the handcart company. It's just who we are. So the traditional narrative, and Joe, you can cut in at any time, but the traditional narrative I was told was, you know, so many people wanted to come to Zion and they were trying to think of the way to get the most people here the quickest. So they got rid of the wagons and all those horses because not everyone could carry, you know, come across with all those horses and everyone had to pack their stuff. And, and that was a lesson too. There's a lesson in that, like, what if you had to pack up your whole, your whole life? What would you fit in the handcart? How do you prioritize? I remember a youth activity where we were asked to pack a handcart and we had to like, would you bring your video games? Are those really important to you? No, you wouldn't bring your video games. You'd bring your family albums and your scriptures. And so we would pack up everything and come West like the pioneers did. They packed up their lives. They had all these hardships. And I think I mentioned this to you, Joe, but in my mind, still, when I do this podcast, I have to remind myself that the overland trails, when Mormons are coming across, doesn't take very long. It takes a few months sometimes if it goes wrong. And in my mind, it's like it took years and years and years because my little Mormon Utah brain is thinking the pioneers are still perpetually walking across the (laughs) desert, you know, singing as they walked and walked and walked. And yeah, we heard, you know, that the handcart companies were told in reverence. They were told with leaders crying tears talking about what faith they had because they had to bury babies along the trail and they froze and they had to cross a river, a frozen river, and the boys got in like gentlemen and carried the women across so the women didn't have to, you know, get their delicate lady toes in the the river. And And the men would freeze to death and die because of it. And we were taught like, this is a, this is what these people gave for their faith. So why are you complaining? (laughs) You know? And uh, one of the things that I heard often from local leaders and our church leaders were the pioneers had trials that were physical, but our trials today are spiritual. And I mean, if you know anything about the pioneers, their trials were absolutely spiritual and physical, but that is what I drew many a strength from thinking of these pioneers, you know, when I'd go through something hard as a teenager, I'd be like, well, but I didn't have to bury my baby on the side of the road. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that's, I mean, that's real. Like that's, I still in my mind, like I will, I will say that, you know, I, I'm a terrible mother. I'll say that to my kids. They're like, I have to do homework. And I'm like, well, your four mothers walked three months to come here. So yeah, it's just, it's really built into our Mormon psyche. So anyway, uh, that rant aside, Joe, tell us what you had heard about the handcart pioneers. Well, thanks, Lindsay. You know, you're you're bringing up this subject, and and your description remind has reminded me of some things that, that as I was preparing for this and telling people about uh, doing this podcast. One of my friends, she was telling me about the story that has been told in her family from it, probably at least her great grandparents, grandparents, parents, and, and then her, that uh, one of her ancestors, and again, there's no name attached to this story um, and no, 
handcart company, but one of her ancestors was in a handcart company and that the shoes that she brought with her, she didn't want to put, or she didn't want to walk in them because she wanted them to be able to enter the house of the Lord. And, and I believe that was a church. I don't think that she actually meant uh, if, I mean, again, the story at least it sounds better if it's a, a temple, but but there was no temple. So I'm thinking it's a, ch- a church is how the family was telling it. And that these shoes were put in the handcart and she walked from Florence, Nebraska to Salt Lake City barefoot so that she would have clean shoes to enter the house of the Lord. I, being a skeptic, said, not only do I not believe the story, but I would be surprised if your ancestor, if you have any ancestors who were in the handcart, that that's a really small group of people. And uh, compared to all the other pioneers that came to Utah, like your ancestors. And, and so it said, and that, let me do some research. I'll find out. So I went and I asked all my friends and, and people who are experts on this subject. They said, have you ever heard this story? And almost all of them came back and said, yes, we've heard the story. Matter of fact, we've heard it forever uh, in our lives, but that they didn't believe the story either. And they said, there's always not a person identified nor a company an immigrant company or, or a handcart company. And so I then went to the Mormon Pioneer Overland Travel website that the, the LDS Church has put together, which is an incredible resource. And I'm sure you'll post the link for that. But I did a search of shoes, and there are 324 results in the database for shoes alone. And then I did one for shoe and there was over 500 results for that. I spent a few hours trying to read through and just see if I could find anything. Now, this includes everybody. This is this is not just hand carts. This is all the pioneers that did not use railroad. It, go, it goes from 1847 to 1868. And so it's an amazing database. And I, I could find fun stories about like a, a Dutch immigrant family that came and they had the wooden shoes and they came upon some Indians and the Indians were, were confused by the wooden shoes. And they were saying to somebody in the company, how in the world can that person walk in wooden shoes? You know, why are they not wearing moccasins? And, and so there was, you know, these great stories, but I could find at least in the bit of time. And again, I didn't go through all 500 and some results because I, I got immersed as it was and had to finally cut my losses, but I never could find even a wagon train that talked about a person who was saving their shoes for church. Now, there were people who, there's one person actually who talked about how they actually kept their shoes in good shape all the way through, but that was because they prayed to keep their shoes. And so God blessed them through uh, keeping their shoes functioning. And that's unique. That's actually a unique story in and of itself. 
but at least I could find somebody who actually told that story. It's sort of like this idea of every Mormon I talk to has a Cherokee grandmother, right? Right, right. Um, like every every single Mormon, and it's usually like there's one Cherokee convert that everyone traces their lineage back to, and that's Penina Shropshire Cotton. And we don't even know if she was actually Cherokee. Uh, she might have been adopted in. She might have been raised by it. We know that her siblings never claimed that that title. So it's really, it's funny because every Mormon I know thinks that they have a Cherokee grandmother. And I'm sure some some people out there actually do. You know, we talked to Thomas Murphy, who's a scholar. His wife, Carrie, can trace her lineage back. But for the most part, we all have these like apocryphal Mormon stories that really don't check out with the actual history. Absolutely. And one of the things, one of the comments I, I said to this friend is I said, for me, you know, the, the reality is so much more interesting and the courage that these people showed to travel in handcart is in and of itself amazing. And, and to then create stories such as the shoes, you know, and, and I get the idea is you're saying, well, you know, we should sacrifice everything to be clean and, and look good and, and, and appear clean when we go to church. I, I get that. I, I know that, you know, Will Bagley in Blood of the Prophets has a quote from one of the federal people, maybe it's even one of the soldiers who comes to Utah to get those 17 children from the Fancher train and take them back to Arkansas. He was, this person says how terrible the children looked, how they were dirty, their clothes were ragged, on and on and on. But he then said, and Will points out, that these children actually looked better than the Mormon children did at the time. The families were doing their best to keep those 17 children you know, fed and clothed and everything and, and as clean as possible, even to, you know, their own children not looking. So, you know, the real story is that the good, you know, the good that the Mormon families did, you know, trying to help those children. At the same time, we're talking about the cleanliness part. So, you know, so the the whole idea to try and have people try and be clean, you know, it, it's a good story, I guess, for that. Unfortunately, I think it takes away from the real history and, and that's what, and that's hopefully, you know, what we can do. One other myth though, that, that I'd like to actually, you know what, let's save that for a bit. But so speaking of shoes, do you mind, there's a couple of uh, just, I thought that again, the real story about shoes, cause I got wrapped up in shoes. Well, can we, can we fit the shoes in if we go in chronological? Can we actually, get to- you know what we should we, well, or at least, yeah, part. Yeah, that's true. We should actually step back and go. You brought it up, actually. Why? Why the hand carts? Yeah. Why? So let let's set it up. So before, like the Vanguard company that first comes in, the first one is a very well stocked uh, company. Brigham Young is there with some of his leaders. It's mostly men. And they come across, they do pretty well. And there are plenty of people that cross the plains without incident. I mean, it was an adventure, you know, as travel always is. But 
I think we have projected this particular handcart company story onto all of the pioneers, and that's just not accurate. So with the context of pioneers are coming over since 1847, talk to us, walk us into the context, set us up for why handcarts to begin with. Yeah, yeah, that's, thank you, thanks. Okay, the first According to Will Bagley, and a lot of the material I'm going to be using comes from Will Bagley's South Pass. It is the latest and best information on the handcarts. His also his his article that was in Journal of Mormon History, One Long Funeral March, is also an important. Uh, and then we already I already mentioned David Roberts' book, but Will points out that during, uh, or in 1848, a group of Mormons heading east actually see a Scotsman pushing a wheelbarrow and uh, across Nebraska. And he tells uh, the Mormons that he says, I love it. He goes, I don't have to worry about the Indians stealing my horses. I don't have to worry about feeding the horses. I don't, you know, I just, I push my, uh, I get up in the morning, I push my wheelbarrow. Matter of fact, the Mormon said, hey, we can put you into a group if you want to travel. And he goes, oh, no, I don't want to do that. He goes, uh, you know, this is much better for me. So, so they then communicate that to Brigham Young and the group. That's in 1848. The, during the 49er gold rush, they also see uh, traveling to the California gold mines, men pushing wheelbarrows. So this whole idea of pushing a wheelbarrow or ultimately a handcart's already going into the Mormon's mind already back in 1848. But during, there's some events that happen and and so d- during the winter of 55-56, Brigham Young reported that the ter- territory's loss of cattle was catastrophic. Probably two-thirds of the entire stock died. Also, the uh, drought of 55 had a- completely devastated the economy, and it left the immigration fund in a horrible financial shape. Matter of fact, in 55, 862 debtors owed more than $100,000 to PEF. So Young told uh, Richards, Franklin D. Richards, he was the mission president for the British Saints, which was basically the European mission. The immigrants for immigration, because I, I you know, that's the problem. I don't know all of these details, but I think even like the Scandinavian Mormons had to travel through Great Britain because of the way that they were sending people to get the good rates on the ships. And so Young t- tells Richards, he says, they, the immigrants, can come just as quick, if not quicker and much cheaper, can start earlier and escape the veiling sickness, which annually lay so many of our brethren in the dust. Young also planned for supply stations along the way. And Will points out, he says, without such a system in place, the handcart scheme offered little margin for mistakes or bad weather. That's important that there was this idea that they would have way stations or supply stations along the way. Yeah. So, so really quick. So the idea for my understanding was 
they would almost like sort of streamline uh, this process coming west. They would have these little encampments. It would be kind of this easygoing thing. And it's almost like this idea of, you know, you can travel somewhere first class now. You can travel to Hawaii on a jet plane or we can put you all on an economy airplane and get you over there really quick and cheap so everyone can come. And, th- and that's kind of the idea, right? That is correct. That's correct. And just to interject here, Patience Louder, uh, who may have the most beautiful, in the sense of vivid, of detail, of just explaining what occurred with her in in her handcart company. And, and that the, her story has actually been published by Utah State University, and it's available, I believe, online. You can download it, the entire book. But, you know, her family was very well-to-do in England, and she her father could have outfitted a few families. Matter of fact, I think he wanted to. And then this actually the first presidency sent an epistle about the handcarts. And he then switched and went handcarts and ultimately died on the trek west. To show you how sure Brigham Young and the first presidency were that this was going to be successful, he said that they would be healthier, they would live healthier. There would be less casualties along the way in this epistle. And then this is the key, though. And you'll see this throughout the anybody who studies the handcarts will see this continually come up. Young and the First Presidency then say, if any apostatize in consequence of this regulation, so much the better, for it is far better that such deny the faith before they start than to do so for a more trifling cause after they get here. If they have not faith enough to undertake this job and accomplishment, accomplish it too, they have not faith sufficient to endure with the saints in Zion, the celestial law, which leads to exaltation and eternal lives. So this is the mindset that this is a way to weed out the, the slackers and the ones who don't have the faith. And you'll see that continually through the whole handcart scheme. Yeah, uh, I, think that's, I think that's a good, a good way to set that up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Young, yeah, so Young was supposed to set up a, a superintendent of immigration for the West, which usually happened with the wagon trains. And, uh, but in 1855, because of, I guess, what was going on there in Utah with with the things happening, with the, the drought and stuff, stuff, he didn't. And so ultimately, John Taylor in the in the east he was he was serving a mission in the east just through attrition actually took charge uh even though fd richards was in england and he was the one who was having to really you know give the numbers do all of that stuff get people prepared do all that but taylor was just fit to be tied and he knew that disaster would occur if they weren't prepared for this so by late 1855, Young ordered John Taylor to start manufacturing handcarts. He gave them 
he gave Taylor the size, material dimensions, and instructions on how to have the immigrants use the handcarts, uh, not only in relation to an early start, but also positive instructions that no indebtedness should occur. So again, back to money. This was about money. The committee, which this is interesting that Taylor recommends this to Young. He says, and and it's a committee that Taylor's a part of. He says, he writes back and he tells uh, Taylor, he says, a handcart with four people sending 60, there should be 60 pounds of breadstuffs, 60 pounds of meat, a pound of tea and some sugar, 20 pounds of cooking utensils, plus clothing, bedding, and a tent for a total of 449 pounds of supplies. In addition, there should be a cow for each two carts or eight persons and a wagon with three yokes of oxen for every 10 carts. And then then Taylor says, the above is predicated upon the calculation of being met at the upper crossing of the plat or the devil's gate. Taylor seems to have seen that all the obstacles and hazards were, you know, for hand carts because that was how he, and that's what they figured. They figured you had to have that. Well, obviously none of that occurred after the disaster, after the, the disaster of 56 young or Taylor and young has been chewing Taylor out about everything. Taylor writes back and says, that when brothers Grant and Kimball first came, and that meaning to New York, he says, I felt and said that I would give $500 for five minutes conversation with you. You must here excuse me, Brother Young. I may be obtuse, and so may those who were with me. But however plain your words might be to yourself on this matter, neither I nor my associates could understand them. I first got a glimpse of this letter in Bill McKinnon's at Sword Point, um, I think back in 2010 or 11 or something like that. Um, And it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. How, first of all, Young is is not clear. And if you read Brigham Young's letters, you can see that they're rambling. They'll start, Juanita Brooks picked up on that, that they'll, they'll talk about the weather, they'll talk about this, they'll talk about that. And then all of a sudden, he'll get to what he really wants to talk about, like in the middle of the letter. And then all of a sudden, he'll go back to, you know, yeah, brother and so and so is doing, you know, the he farmed 500 acres and, you know, or whatever, you know, it just, and for these people who were doing life and death situations to have, these letters that were not well done well with good detail and explanations it it was a potion for for disaster which occurred um, so so let me say this um so Brigham Young has this idea. I think that he was really excited about it at first. The three first handcart companies come over. It works pretty well. He's feeling confident about it. It seems like he doesn't give. I think, I believe the Martin and Willie handcart companies were number four and five. They were. And uh, it just seems like he didn't care at this point. He had other things going on. He, I, I feel like we can attribute his uh, rambly letters to distraction. I mean, he, I think he felt like he had gotten this down. These, you know, these are 
incompetent leaders. Why don't they get it together? And, you know, there were some successful hand cart companies after. I believe the death toll for other companies, excluding the Martin and Willie hand cart companies, were about 1 to 13 deaths on average, which, I mean, that's still not great, (laughs) right? But Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think when we look at this time period, Brigham Young is, the, and this is not an excuse at all. I just think that we have to remember that he had, he was doing a lot of stuff. We've got the Walker War going on. We've got the Mormon Reformation. Brigham Young is losing a lot of people in the Valley. They're leaving like crazy. You know, speaking of those first two, I thought it interesting that this is just one quote uh, from one participant, but I thought it captured pretty well what occurred. It said, so Will, you know, talks about how the first two handcart companies arrive in September of 56, and it was actually met with marching bands, and I mean, it was a big deal you know, and it was hailed as a triumph by all the leaders in Salt Lake. But William Knox Aitken, when he arrived with that Vanguard handcart party, here's what he wrote about it. He said, wearied and worn down, the bones almost through the skin, not only of myself, but of all that were in the company, having walked from Iowa City to the Great Salt Lake, a distance of 1,350 miles, and we have starved to the bargain, our whole allowance being 12 ounces of flour per day, per day, and we did not even get so much. So even the ones that were well stocked and in all the things, you know, the, the hand carts were in better condition because they were seasoned wood and all of those things. That's still what they happened. Um, I, I did a comparison and I did it years ago and I couldn't find it for this, but every, I believed, I believe that I found every single hand cart Oh, no, it was aggregate. That's right. When I did aggregate. So so I didn't do individual. I did aggregate. And I still found that the amount of people who died in the handcarts far exceeded in if you, you know, even when you combine all the overland migration by gold miners, whoever, uh, the people going to Oregon, still the aggregate was so far above the 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 regular people who traveled. The handcart, well, that was one of the things I was going to say is I'm guessing most of your listeners have heard of the Donner Party, correct? Yeah, I you think would, that's fair right? to say. You, this was the, the infamous group who froze and some of them ate humans. Cannibalism, that's right. Okay, so being a kid who grew up in California, a huge, huge part of my education in in California history, every single year in elementary school, um, I don't remember so much being in high school, but at least in elementary school, the Donner Party was discussed every single year. I remember as a little boy taking treks with my, and not treks like you did with a handcart, but treks in a nice vehicle driving up to Donner Summit and going to the the uh, place where the uh, Donner Party camped before they were rescued at Donner Lake 
at the uh, eastern side of Donner Lake, going there and walking around and and reading the the historical markers. And we've had almost every decade, there's been a new production that's shown on TV here in California about the Donner Party. It's a huge deal. It's always talked about. Well, the Donner Party compared to either the Willie or Martin Handcart is a drop in the bucket when it comes to deaths. I mean, there's just no comparison. It's I can't remember in Donner Party, it's 20-some people or 30-some people who who uh, died. You know, it's hundreds in the Willie and Martin handcart people. And, and overall, the handcart is in the hundreds. So, you know, it, it's just amazing. I never heard about the handcarts as a child growing up. Um, now, I wasn't Mormon until I was 10 years old, but I, I don't even remember hearing about handcarts until I probably made one of my uh, trips to Utah as a teenager. Uh, you know, that, that's the difference in how history has played that out. And I'm wrong, actually. It was about uh, 39 people that died before the Donner Party made it to California. And so almost 50% died. So it was a very high percentage um, who died. But just in numbers alone, there's no comparison. Yeah, and I and I actually have the statistics when we get into the disaster, if we want to. I can talk about how many died from each handcart company. But walk us through. So let's go, let's start with the problems. What happens on the actual trek? Yeah, so the biggest thing is that the Willie and Martin handcarts companies did not leave until August. The others left in the spring. The, the, the Vanguard companies left in the spring. And that's why they made it in late September. But the William Martin did not leave until August. So one of the women talks about how, you know, things were great. The first start, you know, it was pleasant weather, you know, walking through Nebraska and and everything's going well. But as soon as they start into Wyoming, things start falling apart. One of the interesting things that occurs is that Franklin Richards, again, the guy who's in charge, technically, from England, he comes over and he leaves Florence and he rides in a horse or carriage across and gets to Salt Lake October 4th, 1856. And he tells the conference, he says that uh, God will rule over the storms because the storms are already brewing. And so he tells the conference that the storms are going to, that God will rule over the storms, that the handcart pioneers will be free from suffering more than they can bear, that at Florence, Nebraska, he'd asked the saints to express their faith and requested to know if any of them um, knew that they should be swallowed up in the storms, whether they would stop or turn back. They voted with loud acclamations that they would go on. He said their faith would bring the choice blessings of God upon them. Richard claims the saints still on the trail, about 1,000 with handcarts, feel that it is late in the season and they expect to get cold fingers and toes, but they have their faith and confidence towards God that they will overrule the storms that may come in the season thereof and turn them away, that their path may be free from suffering more than they compare. At the same time, at the same meeting, though, Young realized that things weren't as good as what Richards was saying. 
So he said to the bishops that they needed, well, he stopped the meeting, told the bishops they need to send 16 mule trains, more than 40 teamsters, a dozen or more wagons, and 12 tons of flour to relieve the people struggling in the mountains. So Richards is painting a pretty good picture. Now, Young did get notification. So that may have been why he reacted the way he did, because he got notification, which Richards wouldn't have, though Richards was there and seeing what was going on. But Young got notification that things were bad and that they should not have even left. So, so Young knew even before they left Florence that things were bad and that things we're starting, you know, that that storms would start brewing in Wyoming and uh, and cause all kinds of havoc. The I'm thinking. Well, I want to read this. You know, when when you read some of the survivors' accounts, they paint a pretty nice picture. Some of the time, some of the time they don't. Some of the time they do. It's just sort of, and and they'll sort of intermix because again, they're now creating faith stories, faith stories as 20 and 30 years pass by. And so some of their reminiscence, but here is actually an account written by two military people and they're near Fort Bridger. And this is what they write about the, this is what they see with the Willie train, which again is not the worst. The Martin is the one who the, the most devastation. So this is what they see with the Willie handcart. And this is, so this is eyewitness. The Willie handcart trains were suffering beyond measure for the want of provisions and on account of the cold. They were very badly clothed, and in consequence of the hardship, many of them were dying. In one camp, they buried 15 in one day. Since the frozen ground was, since the frozen ground was frozen, they had to lay the bodies in heaps and pile over them willows and heaps of stone. What the poor creatures will do and what will become of them, it is hard to tell. Under delusion, they have left their homes in foreign lands and to justify a whim of the governor undertook a journey of thousands of miles, not half provision or fitted for a trip that even in cold weather is difficult enough, let alone in this inclement season of the year. That is an outside observer, and that is what they saw. Here's from John Chislett, who was in the Willie Company, and this is what he tells about his experience. And, and this gets into shoes a little bit. It says, the effects of our lack of food and the terrible ordeal of the Rocky Ridge still remain among us. Two or three died every day. At night, we camped a little east by north of the South Pass, and two men in my hundred died. Chislet had to bury them, but stench of their corpses made him sick, and he vomited fearfully. One of the dead men was wearing a pair of medium-heavy shoes. I looked at them and at my own worn-out boots. I wanted them badly, but could not bring my mind to the sickening point to appropriate the appropriate them, he wrote. Chislet asked for advice. They will do more good than they will him, William Kimball said. Now, William Kimball was one of the rescuers. So this is actually after 
the rescue. Yes. One of the things- so I just want to point that out too. So what I never knew is when we have the Sweetwater Rescue, which we're going to talk about in a minute, we always assume that, at least I assumed growing up, that the men carrying people across the river had been in this handcart company all this time. And that's not the case. They were sent out as part of the rescue. That's correct. And what's interesting, I think, I don't know if it was true for you, but it was for me that I figured once the rescuers, and now this is from reading the New Mormon history even. So this is not from reading faith promoting history. This is reading the New Mormon history that I got from what I read was that, and the impression I got was that once the rescuers got there, all was well. The the people were rescued, they were brought back to Salt Lake, things went great, you know, and, and the death was staggering. Once the rescuers got there, the death still was staggering. Now, if anything helped the hand carts, it actually was a change in the weather. It wasn't so cold for the Martin once the rescuers got there. And they actually made really good time from that point on, but they still lost people, as uh, Chislett points out in his account. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all that great just having them there. And you're right, there's more to that story that we can get into. Was there anything else about the Willie that you want before we jump into the, the other thing that happened with all that? Yeah, no, I think that's good. You know, I'm just thinking, I was looking at the church made a movie called, well, a, a Mormon production company made a movie called The 17 Miracles, where they talk about all these miracles that are happening on the handcart company. And I wanted to make sure that we covered some of them. I think we did, you know, that most of the pioneers were not handcart pioneers. Uh, the majority were not. And not everybody died. And not to say it wasn't horrible, but it really was incompetence and carelessness that, that led to this disaster. They left wrong. They were given bad instructions. Uh, they just weren't prepared for it. So I think, I think that's good to get into the rescue. So things go bad. People are suffering. They're dying. It's happening in Salt Lake. And you always make me think through better. I I appreciate that with you. So yeah, I yeah, I if I remember right, and again I'm going back into my memory banks here, but I recall 60,000 Mormons did the overland route and I think it's right around 600 Maybe it's 800. No, no, no. It's got to be more. No, it's like, no, it's more than that. I'm sorry. It's got to be a couple of thousand, I think, did uh, the hand carts. Because there were three, 350 and 400 and some in both, each of the Willie and Martin. So, yeah. So, there was a couple. Of, but still, it was like a couple of thousand, you know. And I think after the Willie and Martin, there was one year that there was a, they, they were still a high number that started out. But then after that, the other year or two after that, then they just piddled to nothing. The writing was on the wall after the William Martin, which is only third and fourth groups that came into Salt Lake. So, so yeah. So what's going on is that Brigham Young had got this idea that he would ship coal from Carbon County up to Salt Lake and that he would need a steam engine to put on a ship 
that would go from Utah Lake up the Jordan River, and they were going to dredge the Jordan River and go up the Jordan River up to Great Salt Lake and then be able to haul this coal. He needed a steam engine to put on this ship. Now, the people in the east who were the sellers of the steam engine said, you know, you got a problem. Steam engines won't work in salt water. And he said, I don't care. I'll make it work. Steam engine. Then he decided he also needed Deseret type for the for uh, publishing uh, the Deseret alphabet in books. And he also had a bunch of books that he needed. He also wanted a threshing machine that filled up one wagon. And by the way, the steam engine was 13,000 pounds that they actually ended up getting. They needed machinery for a woolen mill. Uh, nearly weighed 45 tons, and then a bunch of other stuff. And it's the other stuff that's even more interesting. So that's all in the East. And so Young sends his people there to ship all this stuff back. Their wagons give out, the men give out, the animals give out. And so they, they just leave everything like the steam engine at the Missouri River the threshing machine. And so Abraham Smoot is sent by Young to get these things. Young wants them brought to Salt Lake. Now, this is all happening now at the same time that the William Martin handcart companies are in Wyoming, freezing to death. And so when Smoot and his people get there, they find the same amount of snow, the same cold, the same everything. And he doesn't have enough uh, men and supplies himself to keep his men alive to even think of getting this stuff back. So he informs Young that he's going to have to leave the books. He's going to have to leave the threshing machine. He's going to even have to leave his engine, precious steam engine, the fixtures, uh, nails, glass, and part of his groceries, and even the dry goods, part of the dry goods, all at Fort Bridger he's not going to be able to bring him back. Well, Young's response is absolutely incredible. He tells Smoot, he says he wants him to bring all the goods in. And if he doesn't have enough teams to call upon the brethren who are out in the mountains with ox teams to assist the handcart immigrants. Yeah, and this is in Bagley's article, right, where Brigham Young's response, he gets frustrated, too, because that's not what he asked, right? But what he asked wasn't clear, and people are trying to discern it, but they, I mean, they literally are incapacitated. They can't, they can't move forward in the way that he wants them to. That's correct. And, and Will then discovered this next little bit of information, um, after he he did uh, the fun- long funeral march, he, and this is found in South Pass. So, Will points out that the freight included Brigham Young's private supplies, and as Will points out, he says, "But but Smoot had already told Young that the boiler and other machinery is more or less rusted by exposure to the weather, and the books I fear are so damaged also." So a winter in Fort Bridger would hardly leave them worse for wear. But it was not the machinery that worried Young 
It was the groceries because the groceries included tons of tobacco, rum, whiskey, brandy, tea, and coffee, which are all perishable and would not have survived until January at Fort Bridger for Young to have sent more supply or people. So, And we touched on this briefly in the Word of Wisdom podcast. So, I mean, the idea is Brigham really was sort of weighing his resources and his priorities. And he did see this shipment as very important. And getting back to that, you know, that if you don't have the faith to come to Zion, then you don't deserve to come to Zion. He would ironically apply that same rhetoric to the rescuers and tie it into their salvation as we yep. as we go along. Yeah, yeah. Caleb Green, who was the camp clerk for Smoot's train, said that, that the train consisted of 43 wagons of merchandise. And three of those were personal items. The three of the wagons were personal items that belonged to Brigham Young. Young, and then he wrote, so we have evidence of what was in the wagons, those three wagons. So, so Green writes that Young wagons in, contained about six tons of freight, which was for the use of his family. And he had a large supply of tobacco, rum, whiskey, brandy, and other liquors, liquors, also tea and coffee. So that was the, that was something that Will discovered after that one because will really thought that it was the steam engine in the uh, long funeral march article and 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 so in that article you know that that's what tied up the rescuers but after that article but before he did south pass he then he then discovered this uh, report by caleb green so that was a big deal for Will to find that. I, I can't emphasize that enough, how that shows the tenacity of a researcher Will is. And I would also say that that points to some of the distractions we were talking about earlier. Yes. Yeah, that's well, right. You know, I, I think that Brigham Young, to his credit, I guess, he had a lot going on all the time. I mean, that was also to his credit, right? He demanded that everything go through him. And because of that, he really, I think, drops the ball on this rescue. Yeah, yeah. Sort of reminds you of uh, when we talk about the Utah War and how he, you know, Bill McKinnon points out the micromanagement to all the way down to what types of bows and arrows that the soldiers, would, the Mormon soldiers would use, you know. And uh yeah. Yeah, which they actually never ended up using, as we also pointed out in that episode. But anyway, but yeah. Is, do you have any other thoughts on the, the Willie? Because uh, I, 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 there is one last thing about the Willie that I wanted to point out, and then we'll move into the, the Martin. Yeah, go ahead and, um, well, okay. I, yeah, do that, and then I'll give the statistics for the Willie. That'd be great. So on November 4th, the survivors of uh, the Willie Company learned that Brigham Young had, so, so these are the survivors, okay? And they're on November 4th. So they're, they just, I believe they just gotten in. Uh, no, no, they hadn't. Okay, they hadn't. So here's, I'm sorry. So they're still out there. They're still out there dying, some of them dying. But anyway, so they learned. So this is, they're coming into the, getting close to Salt Lake. 
he said they learned that President Brigham Young had sent word that some freight freight still lying at Fort Bridger was to be brought in this season, and that some teams and men of our company were needed. William Woodward wrote in the Camp Journal, several teams and men were selected for the trip. Willie's party was still 80 mountainous miles from Salt Lake, caught in yet another blizzard. Seven more people, ages 8 to 66 years, would die before they reached to safety. So these people, what they had gone through, then they themselves learned that Brigham Young's now taking their saviors away from them to go get his supplies. When I when I read that in Will's uh, South Pass, it was like, wow. It just, my mind could not wrap, I could not wrap around thinking I'm out there freezing to death or I may be one of those seven people dying. My statistics say that 68 of 404 uh, in the Willie Handcart Company died. That's 17%. It's different than the Martin Handcart Company, which... Uh, we'll talk about in a minute, but 17% died in the Willie Company. And what was your total number again? I'm sorry. What was 68 total? of 404. 68. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And yeah, yeah. And we, we'll talk about that a little further down, but yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And we should point out that a lot of the people that went through their injuries were, you know, debilitated their, the rest of their lives. Some were crippled because of what they experienced. That's right. That's exactly right. All right, that's let's jump to that, okay, about the shoes, because now we can add in the shoes part. So, okay, and these these are women. I'm 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 tr- I tried to pick out women, and and what they had to say. I appreciate that. Thank you. So Elizabeth Sermon, she said, "Here's what she says." She goes, and she hers is the most positive one. I'll read. My bed was sixty pounds. Was sold for four dollars. I believe she means 60 English pounds that she paid for it and in turn sold it for four American dollars. My sheets, boots, shoes, and my clothing, but a basque were sold. I remember my old dress split every time I stooped. I had no stockings or shoes. Well, I kept up pretty well. Work was hard. Bed was hard. But still, my shoulders were to the wheel, and I think I pulled first rate for a beginner in shafts. They said, Sister Sermon will get to Zion. She draws well. I think it was my faith, did it mostly, but it weakened some before my journey was completed, but not lost. So that's Sister Sermons. I love that. Uh, that's See, that's like in little Lindsay's brain. It's like, there's another story for the yes. trial bank. <laughs> now we're going to get to the ones not so... Nice. So, okay. Sarah James, she wrote, clothing was in rags, especially shoes, only pieces of rags, burlap or canvas was tied around the feet. All too soon, they were chewed through by the torturous train. It was not uncommon to take the clothing from the dead and cover the living. Sarah also wrote about making soup. She said, how good the soup tasted made from the bones of those cows, although there wasn't any fat on them. The hides were used to roast after taking all the hair off of them. I even decided to cook the um, tatters of my shoes and make soup of them. 
It brought a smile to my father's sad face when I made the suggestion, but mother was a bit impatient with me and told me that I'd have to eat the muddy things myself. Another English woman, Anne Rowley, said that she was so hungry that it drove her and some of her children to eat rawhide strips were used to wrap around, you know, the rawhide strips were used to wrap around the iron rims of the wheels and the wood would shrink and the rawhide would come loose. It hurt me to see my children so hungry. I watched as they cut loose rawhide from the cartwheels, roast off the hair and chew the hide. Oh, that's too bad. I, and I just want to say something. It's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this as Mormonism as a works doctrine with the suffering of the saints. When you contextualize, when you have something as a works doctrine, sacrifice brings forth the blessings of heaven, right? So the story of persecution is so important because if you're a modern Mormon now and you're doing Mormonism and it sucks really bad, that's the way it's supposed to be, right? Because yes. that's how it always was. Like, you know, these pioneers were chewing rawhide on the planes to their babies and they kept their faith. So what's your problem? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say this, but let's just say it now is so that remember that uh, myth I was going to bring up and I stopped, I stopped myself. So Francis Webster, who was a member of the Martin Hancock company, this quote is, found in conference addresses. Gordon Hinckley says it in, in 1991 in an October conference. I, he's not the only, I just happened to point him out. But, and this is Connell O'Donovan's research that he, he found where at least the earliest um, for this, this myth. But so Webster, Francis Webster did make a statement and So I'm going to read part of the statement that he actually did make, then I'll point out the myth. So, okay, we suffered beyond anything you can imagine, and many died of exposure and starvation. But did you ever hear a survivor of that company utter a word of criticism? Here's the myth. No one of that company ever apostatized or left the church. Back to his words. Every one of us came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives, for we became acquainted with him in our extremities. Now, Connell discovered that that no one of that company ever apostatized or left the church was not in the original. And that it seems that David O. McKay in 1948 inserted that into the story. So Connell discovered that um, at least 10, and I think he may have found one more now. So there may be 11 people that did leave after the disaster, you know, just, yeah, it's easy to say that not one left. Mm, That's, that's a problem. And, and that's the ones who left Utah. That's the ones who, who, who left Utah, left Mormonism. And I put that together because some of the handcart people left Utah because they, they, their families and stuff would be different places, but they stayed Mormon. But, but he found of survivors that many. So, 
Um, just, yeah, that that's a, I have a real tough time. Again, that's like the shoe thing, you know, we were, we're talking about that the real story of these people's courage and what they went through. So I, I'm going to find, it is just remarkable. I found some information on that. I'm just going back to it about this idea that everyone that was part of the handcart company remained faithful. This comes from Pioneer Women Relief Society magazine, January 1948. I'm going to read you this little blurb. That's the, I think that's the David O. McKay thing, isn't it? Yeah, isn't do you, that one? yeah. Do you want me to read it or no? Yeah, that'd be great. No, that'd be good. It says, it was in an adult Sunday school class of over 50 men and women. Nathan T. Porter was a teacher and the subject under discussion was the ill-fated handcart company referring to the Martin Handcart Company, that suffered so terribly in the snow of 1856. Some sharp criticism of the church and its leader was being indulged in permitting any company of converts to venture across the plains with no more supplies or protection than a handcart caravan afforded. One old man in the corner sat silent and listened as long as he could stand it. Then he arose and said things that no person who heard him will ever forget. His face was white with emotion, yet he spoke calmly, deliberately, but with great earnestness and sincerity. He said in substance... I asked you I ask you to stop this criticism. You are discussing a matter you know nothing about. Cold historic facts mean nothing here, for they give no proper interpretation of the questions involved. Mistake to send the handcart company out so late in the season? Yes. But I was in that company and my wife was in it, and Sister Nellie Yunthink, whom you have cited here, was there too. We suffered beyond anything you can imagine, and many died of exposure and starvation. But did you ever hear a survivor of that company? utter a word of criticism. Every one of us came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives for we became acquainted with him in our extremities. I have pulled my handcart when I was so weak and weary from illness and lack of food that I could hardly put one foot ahead of the other. I have looked ahead and seen a patch of sand or a hill slope and I have said, I can go only that far and there I must give up for I cannot pull the load through it. I have gone to that sand and when I reach it, the cart began pushing me. I have looked back many times to see who was pushing my cart, but my eyes saw no one. I knew then that the angels of God were there. Was I sorry that I chose to come by handcart? No. Neither then nor any minute of my life since. The price we paid became acquainted with God was a privilege to pay, and I am thankful that I am privileged to come in that Martin handcart company. The speaker was Francis Webster, and when he sat down, there was not a dry eye in the room. We were subdued and chastened lot. Uh, and a chastened lot. Charles maybe who later became governor of Utah arose and voiced the sentiment of all when he said, I would gladly pay the same price to personally know the God that brother Webster has. And so it's Francis Webster's story that gets circulated over and over and over. But um, this is a remembrance and they don't even know if it was actually spoken by Francis himself. Well, and then the crazy thing is, too, is then that whole part about nobody apostatizing is then added later. You know, it's like it's already pretty faith promoting. And then they got to up it again. You know, <laughs> so, it's, so they keep upping it. You know, they keep upping the, the story. Yeah. And not only that, but I mean, the people, a lot of people apostatized and left. And some of them that came that came around, you know, weren't even coming because of the faith of Mormonism. They were coming for economic reasons or things like that. And so this idea that this old man remembering his experience years later, after the pioneers were venerated, they were venerated for this. And and I don't mean the handcart companies because that was virtually ignored, that story. Mm-hmm. 
but being a pioneer was venerated. So it makes sense that you could years later apply that. Uh, I think it's interesting that the, that the quote says historical facts do not matter here. (laughs) (laughs) So historical facts do not matter. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Okay, Continue. Well, I am just going to jump to a man because this stood out to me again, you know, we, about the shoes thing. And sorry that I keep going back to that, but this idea that somebody would go without shoes on purpose. And when I read this, I thought, wow, you know, this just blows my mind. So this is actually a person that wrote about people with their shoes worn out. It says their toes were protruding from the shoes in a bleeding condition in the same way some were compelled to stay on the way and pull sandburrs from their feet, shedding many tears. Alas, it was painful and sorrowful to see the mothers carrying their babies on the way, giving them the bosom and languid and tired steps with sorrowful hearts. Which is quite a beautiful story. This man's story was published in '45, and I'm guessing the family probably did it, and they removed a bunch of stuff from his story because he was very critical of the leaders. And so they did that. But to think about, you know, again, the courage, I go back to that. We, we, we create these stories, but yet the courage that it took for people just to take one more step, their feet are bleeding and they're having to pull burrs from their feet. I'm a very modern person. I don't like being without my shoes at all. I, I couldn't imagine what that would be like. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's no doubt that it that was hard. And so there's this tension of how much do we capitalize on the grimness, you know, to, to perpetuate whatever narrative, whether it be ex-Mormons who want to criticize it or Mormons like, like me who were like the grimmer, the better. Right. But it was, it was a grimness that never acknowledged that the suffering was, was avoidable. And that's, that's kind of the tragedy of it, in my opinion. It really is. And it's it's almost like every prediction or every recommendation that John Taylor made that Brigham Young didn't do created disaster. And like Will Bagley points out, you know, that that there was no margin for error when it came to handcarts. That, that you could have error with wagons and oxen and horses, but you couldn't have error with handcarts. There's a, a great account in Bill McKinnon's at Swords Point 2 of the military because the Mormons had destroyed quite a bit of the supplies of the U.S. Army. And so the U.S. Army had to go to New Mexico to resupply and take it back. So they hiked along the Rocky Mountains through Colorado, and they're being plummeted with snowstorm after snowstorm after snowstorm. And that colonel never lost a man. He he handled the situation. He kept his head, and they would kill their animals and eat their animals as they'd go along, and they'd do different things that were horrific, but or, but they survived. And he made sure every man made it to New Mexico. So, you know, it's a difference between preparation, which this colonel did, versus lack of preparation. 
with the hand carts. And I did find the uh, contextualizing Francis Webster's uh, comments, which I'm going to link on the site. It's a BYU Studies article by Chad Orton. And I'm just going to read this. Uh, this is back to Francis Webster saying that, like, how dare you mock it? I was on that. Mm-hmm, you know, right. um, this is what Chad says about it. He says, while Webster's statement has been presented as his actual words, Palmer did not make that claim. Rather, he included a caveat. He said in substance, it is not known exactly when Fra- Francis Webster made his comments. It is also not known when Palmer put those comments on paper, although it is likely he did not take them down word for word when Webster uttered them. From available evidence, it appears that Webster made his comments in 1904, two years prior to his death at the age of 76. Although no Cedar City Sunday School records or records from that time are extant, Palmer mentioned two other individuals by name: Nathan T. Porter, whom Palmer identified as a teacher of the class, and Charles W. Maybe, who later served as a governor of the state of Utah. Porter served as principal of the Normal School teacher training program for the Branches Agricultural College from 1901 to 1904. While maybe was an instructor at the same school till 1906, maybe later recalled that either he or Howard R. Driggs, not Porter, was the teacher of the Sunday school. The question of the teacher does little to change from the time frame. Driggs was the assistant principal of the normal school. Nearly 40 years later, Palmer recounted what transpired in the Sunday school class. Um, at a radio station in Cedar City, Utah. So he would, this Palmer guy would perpetuate the story 40 years later and he would get the names wrong of a lot of the, the people. So that's kind of speaks to this idea of memory, but we've taken this statement and it's become almost canonized in Mormon folklore as as what happened. But anyway, can we go and we're running out of time. You are absolutely but, right, Lindsay. Absolutely. Do, sorry, but you are absolutely right. Okay, I'm sorry. Go on. So I'll link to the article, but why don't we um go into the rescue really quick? Or I just want to talk about the Sweetwater Rescue because that is the thing that has the most focus. That would be great. And Do you want to do that? And then I've got one comment about Ephraim Hanks with that. So did you want to say anything particular about it? Or uh, No. So just the story is that these you know, young boys are all 18 year old boys. I think, I think if I'm remembering right, Hinckley recounted this story. In that same uh, conference address, maybe? Yeah, just about the story of these 18 year old boys who would, they cross the Sweetwater. Uh, when Brigham Young heard of this story, he wept like a child. And these men would lose their toes, you know, fingers and toes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to link an article that sort of talks about what actually happened with the Sweetwater Rescue. But what do you want to say about it first? Well, and I, you know, again, doesn't Chad Orton tackle that? I mean, Chad Orton really did some great work with that. And did he also tackle that too in a BYU studies or am I misremembering? No, he does. He And he actually has a blog too, which I'll link to, where he sort of debunks the myths and it's a little bit more accessible and digestible. But he actually goes and talks about the rescuers, who they were, who what their names were, and it just, it just, compl- first of all, not all of them are 18. Right, <laughs> that's, right. That's one of the things that he's like, nope, that's not a thing. And that's something that we can, you know, prove. But I'll, I'll just read a bit what he says about that. Sure. It's got a bunch of taps here. That Francis Webster quote was great. This is what he says. Uh, this is what Chad Orton writes. The evidence indicates that more than three rescuers braved the icy water that day. Of those positively identified as being involved in the Sweetwater Crossing, none were exactly 18. Although these 
rescuers helped a great many of the handcart pioneers across the river, they carried only a portion of the company across. While some of these rescuers complained of health problems that resulted from the experience, most lived long and active lives that terminated in deaths that cannot be definitively definitively attributed to their exposure to the icy waters that day. Brigham Young did publicly associate exaltation with the effort to rescue the stranded pioneer companies, as did Heber C. Kimball, who publicly praised by name two who helped at the Sweetwater. However, both Young and Kimball taught that the tie between the rescue and the Celestial Kingdom was conditional in that the individuals involved needed to needed to meet established requirements that all Latter-day Saints must attain of living their religion and enduring to the end. Individuals should not be misled to believe that one hero- heroic act on their part, will guarantee exaltation of the celestial kingdom. Yeah, I forgot about that part. Uh, we were told that they were promised that their calling election was made sure, right? That they were sent straight to the celestial kingdom for this act. Yes. Um, let's see. And then we have of the rescuers mentioned by Jones in a different account of the crossing. 18 have been positively identified as assisting the Martin Hand the Martin Company on the day they crossed the Sweetwater, November 4th, 1856. Thomas Alexander, William Broomhead, Robert Burton, Harvey Clough, Charles Decker, George D. Grant, George W. Grant, Benjamin Hampton, C. Allen Huntington, Daniel W. Jones, David P. Kimball, Ira Nebaker, Joel Parrish, Edward Peck, Thomas Ricks, Stephen Taylor, Chauncey Webb, and, and Cyrus Wheel- Wheelock. And I will say, like, some people that think that they have ancestors on this from this company likely are related to the rescuers who are not part of the company, if that makes sense. Right. 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 They would had, they would have had the large family and, and the Kimballs, you know, you got Kimballs, you got Joan, you know, there's some huge uh, Mormon families in those, in the, among those, those men. So, yeah. Um, so let me just, can I read one more quote from oh, absolutely. He says, exactly how many members of the Martin company were physically carried across by the relief party is not known, but the evidence suggests that only a portion of the company crossed in that manner. Several factors argue against the idea that a few rescuers carried all the company over the Sweetwater. First, there likely was not enough time. The company did not reach the river until afternoon, thus giving them only hours to cross before darkness overtook them. Second, the relief party had access to a number of wagons which were used to ferry immigrants across. Oh, gosh. Okay. Third, both rescuers and handcart pioneers recounted that some company members waded through the water themselves. While those who had difficulty walking had first claim on the wagons, those who had first claim on being carried by the rescuers at the river were women and children. S.S. Jones wrote, quote, The brave boys from the valley under George D. Grant carried the women and children over the Sweetwater River, but the men and able body had had to wade. End quote. So elderly were carried across and some people that, you know, were struggling already. But this, this is what I'm trying to say. So there was absolutely suffering in these, in this struggle, in this handcart company, but the suffering was due to a lot of factors, mostly negligence on the part of their leaders. So to see it re appropriated as suffering that the, that the leaders rescued is where I take issue with it, right? Because I don't want to dismiss the suffering that they actually felt, but the suffering was not alleviated because of the leaders. It was first caused by them. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And and I think that's what you have captured. What I think you and I are on the same place with this, that what these people did, the both the rescuers and the uh, the those who were the handcart immigrants 
what they did was again amazing i keep using amazing and courageous and we we can never sell them short in that but telling their story as honestly and as accurate as possible only honors them by creating myth i don't i think that actually dishonors them yeah i i agree yeah. uh, and speaking of this is this is one of the rescuers for the Martin hand cart um, who was not a part of the, that sweet water because he went on and that's Ephraim Hanks. And in one of his comments, he says that what he saw, he could never forget. Now this is a B-hoy. This is one of the tough guys. This is one of Brigham Young's henchmen. Okay. One of his, you know, if, if it was mafia, it'd be one of his, uh, El Capitans or whatever, you know, I mean, this is a tough guy. And he said he could never, ever forget what he saw. So here's what he said he did. And because this is after he's left the main body and this, and, and there's still people along the trail of the Martin who've been basically left for dead. And, and, and people are telling them they're gone. There's no way these people are alive. And he goes on through the snow and actually finds people alive. And this is what he writes of what he, of what he found and what he then had to do. And it's, again, it's mind-blowing. So he says, many of the immigrants whose extremities were frozen lost their limbs, either whole or in part. Many such I washed with water and Castile soap until the frozen parts would fall off, after which I would sever the shreds of flesh from the remaining portions of the limbs with scissors. Some of the immigrants lost toes, fingers, and again, others whole hands and feet. Why would we want to make stuff up when Ephraim Hanks and these other people had to deal with this kind of stuff. Um, it's just, yeah. Yeah. And so. I think, I mean, so this is the other thing as, as with all human nature, right. Things get reduced to memes. So this whole, like the whole pioneer trek really gets reduced to this handcart story, the rescue, the Sweetwater rescue. And really that was like one afternoon, like three hours of part of a larger context, a huge part of the story. The handcart story is a pioneer story. It is not the pioneer story. It's part of the pioneer story. But we've sort of turned it into this mythos about how, you know, these guys suffered greatly and you can too. And the sacrifice of these of these rescuers who, I mean, it, it really wasn't a sacrifice what they did. <laughs> they were just doing what they were supposed to. They were being obedient. And, um, and, and not to undermine it, I mean, but it should have been, they should have been rescued so, sooner. The, the handcart companies were disappointed and they were let down by a lot of their fellow saints. And that's okay. I mean, that's, that's what happens. Life is messy like that. But to rewrite it, um, to cover up the fact that, that it was kind of a failed effort, I think is kind of unfortunate. And I think that, I'm sure that those who suffered had to see that history rewritten and maybe even rewrote it themselves to make sense of what happened. 
Absolutely. Absolutely, Lindsay. Um, um, do we want, I just want to talk about Connell O'Donovan's research really quick about, because this ties into the polygamy angle. A right. lot of the immigrants that come are left orphaned or widowed and uh, become married off when they get into town, <laughs> when they get into Salt Lake. Let me read the death statistics for the Martin Handcart Company really quick. Okay, so the Willie Company started with 404 people. Um, this this says about 80 people died. I'm going to have to look at the statistics yeah. on that. And I'm going to add, because this fits in with what you just said. So South Pass, this is what, and Will is being extremely conservative, okay, in what he says about that. He has that the census of the dead was never taken, according to historian Tom Rhea. But handcart veterans reported about 225 died with the Willie and Martin companies. Now, the actual, uh, the, in the LDS churches um, estimates, um, that the 10 handcart companies suffered anywhere from 252 people dead to 340. Now I've talked, and I think it's David Roberts book is closer to 400. And that's what he came up with in his research. So it's probably closer to 400 of all that's all handcarts. Now, again, as you pointed out, the other handcart companies had, quite a bit less. It, the, the majority of dead were in the Willie and Martin with the Martin being the highest. So, yeah. So, so the, let's talk about what Connell bring Connell O'Donovan brings in with the fact that, you know, now people arrive in 1856 during the Mormon reformation. This is when Brigham Young would be asking for everyone to get in line and more plural marriages are, occurring than any other period. Yes, absolutely. And we had talked about, you know, that there's two, there, there's actually a new letter that has just surfaced. I mean, it, it's been known about, uh, Irene Bates actually wrote about it um, years ago, but Connell then basically rediscovered it. And, and that this comes from John Smith, the patriarch of the church, Hiram Smith's son, oldest son, his wife, um, Helen Fisher, Kim, uh, Helen Fisher Smith, says during the Reformation that girls as young as eleven, no ten, as as young as ten, were being married, off. So uh, and and but the youngest that um, Connell and he focuses mainly on the Martin handcart, which has the most devastation as we've talked about. And so these are, are, are orphan children. And he found an 11 year old who marries a 30 year old and is pregnant within the first year. He, this, the, the man who this 11 year old marries also marries another young, a 26 year old woman on the same day. What's interesting though, is that the 11 year old's parents actually survived so she was not an orphan but so many of the other children were the next youngest was 13 years old and she married a 24 year old 
And she also conceived um, within three months after that marriage. Let's see. The oldest man to marry a teen was 52 years old, and she was 15 years old. And she conceived their, her first child with him about three days into the marriage. Well, I, there's a story just, for example, on LDS.org talking about a pioneer. Um, her name was Chris Kirsten, Kirsten Erickson. She was part of one of the handcart companies. And I'm just going to read this part. You know, it's, a, it's the same typical pioneer story. She doesn't have enough to eat. They're starving. It says, reaching Zion at last, Kirsten arrived in Salt Lake City on September 13th. The company had traveled slightly more than 1,000 miles from Florence, Nebraska in 68 days. And before that, she had pulled a handcart for three weeks from Iowa City to Florence, covering about 300 miles. Was Kirsten's heart full of gratitude and joy? Unfortunately, we don't know. She recorded only her regret at having to leave behind most of her clothing and her surprise at the ragged pioneer she met in Utah. Another traveler that, that same year summed up the experience of those who pushed and pulled handcarts, quote, There could not have been a more difficult mode of travel. I knew when I left England that ours was to be a handcart company, but it was impossible for me to realize the hardships I had to meet. End quote. Shortly after arriving, Kirsten was taken to the home of her sister in Lehigh, Utah, where she recovered from the journey. On November 1st, just a month and a half after arriving in Utah, she married her brother-in-law, Jens Peter Benson, as a plural wife. Brigham Young performed the sealing ordinance. Um, so this just shows, like, this this was the mode of the, like, I don't, you know, some people will call this human trafficking, and I think that there is uh, an application in modern understanding of that to be made here. A lot of the immigrants coming across did not realize that they were coming across to work in the homes of people and be married off pretty soon. And, and that's what happened, especially to a lot of the Scandinavian immigrants who, or, you know, those from Europe who didn't speak English, they would come into the, these homes and be placed with family members or people that spoke their language and be married off pretty soon after. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. About the Martin, that's a, a bit interesting is that Connell, uh, documents 309 women, females, um, shouldn't say women, females were in the company, 149. So almost half were 20 years or younger, 20 years old or younger. Um, 149 of those young women and girls, only 12 died. So that leaves 139 survivors. And we, t we actually talked about this in a previous podcast, but we should bring it up again, that it was mainly men who died during the handcart. One reason, because men don't do well in cold, extreme cold. Women just for some reason do better in extreme cold and, and depredation. The other thing is the men were the ones usually doing the pulling until they died and then the women. So the women are, you know, probably um, working up strength to do it. The men are going cold turkey into it and just don't do well. Uh, the other thing that Connell discovered is that 55 of those survivors, of that 137 survivors of 20 and below, 55 of those entered in to marriage, and that 42 of the 55 conceded, conceived a child prior to turning 20 years old. 
I mean, that, that whole thing was rampant. He, Connell sent me, and it was very kind of him to do this. He sent me a story in its, you know, his, he did all the research on it and actually interviewed descendants of this woman, Sarah Ann Briggs Hanley, who is one of the Martin. She's one of those Martin handcart survivors. So she's, uh, let's see, she's like 10 years old. She was nine. I'm sorry. She was nine years old when they arrived in in Utah. She was sent to Sugar House Ward, and she because her mother died of a scorpion bite. She had to. So she was nine when she was sent to this house. I'm sorry. She was nine when she was sent to the house. She was only five five years old when she came to Utah. She, it's one one of her stepsisters, and her stepsister is Elizabeth Clark who's married to George Handley. George Handley's a brick mason from England. Now he's a monogamist, wants to be stay a monogamist. And actually when he's told that he needs to take a second wife, he actually tries to convince his leaders that he should be sent on a mission, he and his wife back to Keokuk, Iowa, to help Mormons, you know, travel to to Utah. So Home teachers, now I guess they're called ministers, right? Isn't that what they're called now? So home teachers came to convince him that it probably wasn't a good idea for him to do that, that he probably should follow the the Lord's will and, and marry. So they burned his barn down and told him that he needed to get his act together. So if your home teacher comes by, just make sure that you don't let him burn your barn down. And good life so, advice, Joe. Thanks. Solid life advice. Okay. I wanted to make sure that we don't have your barn get burnt. So George Hanley, who's 42 years old, is sealed to his first wife in the endowment house, Elizabeth Clark, and then polygamously married to her stepsister, who's only 14 years old. And he ultimately kills himself. He poisons himself. His wife, Elizabeth Clark, first wife, believes that it's because of her younger stepsister not wanting to be in a polygamous relationship. When, after George Hanley commits suicide, Sarah Ann Briggs leaves Mormonism and actually ends up affiliating with the Episcopal Church, I think is what Connell found. Um, yeah, the Episcopal Church there in Salt Lake City. That rumor was among family members, at least, that Elizabeth Clark demanded or insisted that her all the children, which I think is four children that Sarah Ann, the the uh, young girl, had before um, Charles Hanley, and before she was even I think twenty, yeah, she was twenty two. By the age of twenty two, she had four small children that those should be taken away from her so she they don't follow um, into the Episcopal Church. Now, whether that happened or not, Connell doesn't say if any of the children. I'm guessing they didn't because he Connell, again, interviewed some of the descendants. But, you know, there's, there's a, a, a cutting-edge story that Connell just worked on about this. At the end of all of this, so Brigham Young declared on November 2nd. So again, the Martin company still out there. The Willie company is even, well, the Willie company is just coming down in 
so it, this time in November. And Young, before they even though get in to the valley, he says, if any man or woman complains of me or of my counselors in regard to the lateness of some of this season's immigration, let the curse of God be on them and blast their substance with mildew and destruction until their names are forgotten from the earth. And again, remember, David Roberts, through that research that he did, discovered that Brigham Young was aware that there was disaster looming before they even left Florence. So, you know, Brigham Young's trying to circumvent uh, people pointing the finger at him. John Taylor's response to Brigham Young, this is a year, about a year. No, it's, no, it's, I'm sorry, it's not. It's three months after this, but it's, it's John Taylor writing to Brigham Young. And, and Young has accused Brigham Young of wasting church fun, funds on the handcart system. And so Taylor's response is powerful. He says, the handcart system was to me and to us all a new operation. It was better for a small company to go through safely than for a larger one to perish on the way. He continues, the experiment demanded the utmost care with a train started, when the when a train started, to know that it would go through. I knew of the weakness and infirmity of many women, children, and aged persons that were calculated to go. I did not consider that a few dollars were to put in competition with the lives of human beings. Throughout this entire fiasco, throughout this entire scheme of Brigham Young's with the handcarts, John Taylor kept advocating for safety, that human life mattered. And Brigham Young continued to show that after time after time, that human life never that's why John Taylor's yeah. the one true prophet. Am I right, That's fundamentalists? Really, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I there's some. I can. I'm going to attach some commentary. I think it's at MHA that. Uh, oh, it's the female scholar's name. She she blames it on Richards, Franklin Richards. I think. But yeah, it's hard. Like I think it's a system of blame. But really, I mean, if you take Bagley's Bagley's information that Brigham Young cared more about his you know, cart of tobacco and whiskey over rescuing these people, that that is a valid interpretation. And some people look at it and think that it was just one of those tragedies that happened by, you know, by a lot of a lot of people. But regardless, I mean, there was a lot of suffering to come to Utah. It was not an, an easy thing for some. If you were poor, it was not an easy thing. So and then if and if you were a Gentile, even if you had yeah. money. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about about the handcart company? Yeah, the only thing I'd like to say is that anybody who's interested in this subject, you know, you're going to be putting up some links, but the the amount of information on the handcart pioneers is absolutely amazing. There's no um, in preparing for this. It was not a lack of information that I was having an issue with. It was the mountains of information that, that a person could draw from. And, and every story is powerful. Every person's story is, 
again, using that word amazing and using that word courageous. And these people deserve our respect for what they went through. And those people who went there to assist, to bring them back and to help them bury their dead and to cut their flesh off of their their bodies as Hanks did also deserve our respect. One of the things I said to Will when I, he allowed me to read his uh, one long funeral march before it was ever even considered to become an, a standalone article. I said, the thing about you, Will, is that you respect the people. You respect those immigrants. And you comes through and in his writings, and that's why I highly recommend his writings, but there's no way you can read these people's accounts and not feel a true sense of, of uh, respect for them. Brigham Young, not so much. And that's why, like always, I'm going to take stories like, who's, who's the woman that you read her account? Patience Louder? She was, or, she the oh, no, no. So that was like Seward, you know, like the guy who bought, can't think of his name, uh, Alaska. That bought Alaska, right? Similar uh, to well, name. I think the, it was Seward. Well, that's why I take stories like hers to mean something. I mean, I think that, like, I, I think it's okay to derive lessons from these people, but you have to also understand that the lesson you're taking is one small part of their story, and that's not necessarily how they would have interpreted it or experienced it at the time, right? I mean, they were not doing this so years later people could learn a lesson from their experience they were just surviving and and that's okay uh, and like you said uh, Brigham Young's not my favorite people on the podcast know that but <laughs> I will say I'm going to use this this time to announce what I'm going to be doing I have this new project for this podcast that I'm going to be doing uh, I'm going to try it out for a little while and see how it works once a month, I'm going to have, I have actors who are reading the sermons from the Journal of Discourses, uh, and they're going to give them as a sermon, and we're going to start with Brigham Young. And it, I will tell you, it has helped soften my view and help me give some context and understanding to who Brigham Young was when I hear the sermon read. Um, that doesn't mean I, you know, agree with him necessarily on a lot of things, but I think it will be a powerful series, so it'll be interesting to see what people take out of that. So that should be after we publish this, we're going to put up our first Brigham Young sermon. That's exciting. Um, so you're going to go to more of unrated R kind of a show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's actually really good. Uh, our actor who, who does the Brigham Young sermon, it's really great. Uh, he's, he gives a certain sermon. We're picking ones that have to do with polygamy and he gets really into it. Um, Brigham Young's delivering this particular speech outside. The wind interrupts the speech, um, as we know from the text. So the actor, you know, is yelling over the wind at one point. And so it should be interesting. We'll see how that goes. But I, I will say that it has given me more insight into how people saw Brigham Young. So maybe that will also be an experience that listeners have. Yeah. By the way, the woman is Elizabeth Sermon. I was wrong, not Seward Sermon. Yes, um, stories like Elizabeth Sermon gave. And uh, just one last thing I wrote in my review on the complete discourses of Brigham Young. I said, I, I, it was actually, again, Will Bagley who 
got me looking into this and discovered. And, and then Lejean Carruth has even gone further with it in her um, tra- translating the James Watt shorthand notes that Watt would edit as he was doing his shorthand, he would edit Brigham Young for grammar and and con, uh, grammar and making sense out of what was saying. And then before he published in the Journal of Discourses, he edited them again to make them flow better. We got to keep in mind when we when we talk about Brigham Young's sermons that Watt was you know editing them right from the beginning to to give some coherency to them. It, it's an interesting. It's actually a very interesting thing to look. At least I found it interesting. Probably only me and five other people in the world found it interesting, but I did find it. Interesting. <laughs> Send that over to me. I, I want that. Okay. Okay. Okay, well, uh, Joe, thanks again, as always, for coming on. And thank you, Lindsay. You're amazing. It's true. I am. Yes, you are. (laughs) It's the Diet Coke. Okay, well, Joe, you're amazing, too. And everyone, thanks for listening. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.